All right, return with me, if you would, to verse 23. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now, the historical narrative of all this uh, comes out of Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 2 to verse 10, uh, at a time when the the Hebrews, the children of Israel, had been uh, enslaved in Egypt for nearly 400 years. And it was at this time that, uh, as the text says, a new Pharaoh had come to power who did not recognize Joseph for all of the benefits course, providentially, that he had bestowed, not just upon the nation of Egypt, but upon the whole known world at that time. The whole known world was perishing. And because of the wisdom that God had given to Joseph, Joseph saved the Egyptians, he saved his own family, and he saved all those who were able to come to Egypt to purchase grain. And this new Pharaoh uh, did not care, he did not recognize that, but what he did recognize what, was that the Hebrew population was exceeding the Egyptian population. They were growing in numbers rapidly. The text even says that he tried to make life harder for them, and in spite of that, they, their population grew even more. Okay? Not sure if there's a scientific reason for that, but hardship produced more children. And... Uh, And as leaders have a tendency to be, he was insecure. And he was fearing that the Hebrews might join with the enemies of Egypt, overpower them, and then leave the land of Egypt, which essentially meant that the Egyptians would have no one to do the heavy lifting for them. Uh, They'd have to build their own pyramids and temples. So the Pharaoh thought of a satanic solution, uh, not that different from uh, Planned Parenthood's, He initially ordered, uh, in Exodus chapter 1, the execution of the male children through the midwives. He gathered up the midwives among the Hebrews, and he said to them that when you are there and a Hebrew woman delivers a male child, you shall kill it. You shall smother it, whatever. Now, of course, you know, we call that infanticide, the, the... the murdering of infants. We don't call it abortion. Infanticide is uh, committing, uh, that is committed after the child exits the mother's womb and abortion is committed while the baby is partially or fully in the womb. It's, it's something you're very aware of in our culture. And I don't know uh, how much you have been faced with encountering the discussion, uh, especially as our culture leans more and more toward a secular end of things, I try to engage in the dialogue personally, individually with people as frequently as I can, not just on this issue, but uh, any issue that is being accepted by our culture that is uh, not acceptable to God and his design for humanity, um, moral issues, whatever it may be. And, and as I began, uh, I, I never make things a political issue with non-believers. I just don't think that it's necessary. Okay. I, want to get, I want to address the issue of their heart as it is in opposition to God so that I might uh, reach them with the gospel. Okay. I, God can fix all of their politics. 
uh, once they're born again and uh, the Spirit of God is dwelling inside them and then they have his word uh, to adjust things for them. But what I often try to do in all of this is I try to engage intelligently uh, with, um, with winsome arguments uh, in the debate. And I try not to make it a debate, of course. But when it comes to this whole issue of infanticide versus abortion, and infanticide now is becoming legal in America, by the way, uh, if you haven't been paying attention. And um, uh, Peter Singer, uh, renowned uh, bioethicist uh, professor in America, is promoting infanticide, uh, saying that there is no difference between infanticide to a certain age and abortion. Okay. So it's here, and uh, I believe firmly that it will come to uh, legislation uh, aggressively in the next few years. And, and I believe that we as Christians need to be prepared for this biblically, uh, intellectually and things, because it is our job to engage. And so this whole issue of infanticide and abortion uh, what we need to really understand is that the only difference between the two is the location of the child when it's murdered. That's the only real difference. Uh, he's either murdered inside the womb or he's murdered outside the womb. Uh, we, I, I hope we all understand that a person's dignity uh, is not determined uh, based upon their location. Okay? It's irrelevant to their personhood. Uh, the location of a murder does not determine whether it's a crime or not, you know, where it was committed. Uh, my personhood would not be determined by, whether I was, uh, by where I was killed. I'm not one thing while in my house and another thing while outside of my house. It's ridiculous to say that as long as I was killed in my house, that it was justifiable, but if I was killed outside my house, it was murder. You understand? Okay? My location is irrelevant to my dignity, to my personhood, all right? Murder is an act that is determined by the action itself, not by the location at which it was performed. It is not, okay? The same is true for a baby, regardless of its location. If it's terminated, it's murdered. It's murdered, okay? And according to the creator, the location and the development of the child is completely irrelevant, okay? According to scripture, a child at the moment of conception has all, uh, as much value and personhood as an adult, and in the scriptures they're protected the same. Okay, there's, no, uh, there's no other way to interpret Exodus 21, 22 through 25. You may not be familiar with the story, but what is happening in this, the scenario that Moses is providing is that if, if two men are fighting and they purposely or accidentally injure a woman who is pregnant, regardless of the, the, uh, the trimester. If the baby is, if, if the woman uh, delivers and the baby is alive, the man who did it is punished. If the baby dies, the man is executed. Because the Bible says that where man sheds man's blood, his blood shall be shed. So God treats the unborn the same as the born. You understand? This is God's perspective, all right? So a child in utero is created in the image of God at conception. And so any assault on the child at any stage of life is an assault 
on the image of God, which God takes very personally, and he treats the act for what it is. He treats it as murder, which accounts in our story for how God dealt with the Egyptians on that dreadful night of the first Passover. It was life for life. And by the drowning of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. It was life for life. Now in Exodus, the midwives were discerning enough. They were discerning enough to recognize this, and so they did not comply with Pharaoh's genocidal command. This is great. They disobeyed his orders, and then they lied to him, and the text says that God rewarded them with households. That's an interesting subject in itself, is it not? They disobeyed the government in order to save life and honor their creator. But then the story advances. After the Hebrew midwives failed to comply with the king's orders, the king, the Pharaoh, he dispatched his own people to do the deed and the slaughter of children began. Now it's impossible to know exactly how many baby boys were drowned in the Nile River by the hand of the Egyptians, but it was numerous. It was numerous, okay? And then it was, as the story progresses, it's in the midst of all this chaos. And it's, un, it's unimaginable, isn't it? To be in your home, deliver your child, and if it's male, it's taken from you and it's drowned in the Euphrates River. But it's in the midst of all of this, babies being taken, that a couple from the tribe of Levi, they had their baby. Talk about delivering in fear. Okay. And when they saw that their son was beautiful, it says that they hid the baby for three months. So, now by the way, everyone thinks their own babies are beautiful at birth. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> so. What is essential to the text are the actions of the parents in the face of extreme opposition and danger from the government. From the government. Okay. The verse says... By faith, Moses, but the passage really isn't about Moses' faith yet. It's about the faith of his parents because babies don't hide themselves and babies don't act with moral courage. Amen? The kids don't act with moral courage for quite some time. The faith here is attributed to his parents. Now, it's here in Hebrews 11 that the, the actions of faith, and this is important in the progress of our chapter, the actions of faith differ greatly from the examples that came before it, okay? This is the first time that faith is held in opposition to something, and here it's in opposition to a government decree or policy. That's what it's in opposition to. Now, I think this is important to the original audience of the book of Hebrews. Okay, I think that they probably identified with this particular example of faith more than the others, because they were living in a time and at a place where it was dangerous to be a Christian and a Jew. It was dangerous, okay? Their faith was in conflict with their community. And now there's historical evidence um, that at this time that the Romans had granted the Jews to police their own people in their own communities even if they were outside of Israel, according to the law of Moses. Minus capital punishment. So whatever abuses these believers endured in a Jewish community was totally legal. It was totally legal. It was legal to persecute them. It was legal to, as uh, chapter 10 said, to confiscate and plunder their goods. 
It was legal to mistreat them. Okay? What a horrible situation. But if anything, according to what we were given in chapter 10, it's still inferior to what happened to their ancestors in Egypt. Okay? So we do go from the greater example in Exodus chapter 1 and 2 to a lesser example in Hebrews chapter 11. And so I think what the author is getting at is if they can endure by faith with moral courage, then so can you. Amen? Yeah. yeah I think it's definitely secondary. I mean, I, I would have my property confiscated any day of the week before I would have one of my children ripped out of my hands and drowned. Okay. Yeah. So these Hebrew Christians certainly were not the first among God's people to endure suffering for the faith in fact, the Hebrews in Egypt may have been the first, really, to suffer for their faith. Okay. And for the first time in the chapter, the actions of faith, listen, the actions of faith are illegal by the midwives and by Moses' parents. Their actions of faith are illegal, and that is not to be confused with immoral. And I believe that Christians living in secular societies need to understand that, that their actions of faith can be illegal and not immoral, okay? It is not always immoral to disobey government when the government crosses a certain line. Can we all agree on that? Okay. There are things that are illegal but not immoral, and there are things that are legal which are immoral. Yeah, our society is filled with strange inconsistencies. This moral chaos is abounding more and more. For example, it's legal in Western society to produce pornography, fornicate, and murder the unborn. But every one of those things is grossly immoral, right? It's legal, but it's immoral, okay? Yeah. Human government says that it's legal, but the creator of all things who made sex holy, who instituted marriage, who placed his image in every human being from conception, he detests the corruption of all those things, okay? Man may get away with it in this life, but he will not escape in the next, okay? There's an authority that transcends human government, and it's that authority that we answer to, right? Yeah, okay? And every person ultimately is going to give an account to that government. Now, Moses' parents must have understood these things to some degree, otherwise, why would they not fear the king's command? this new policy. Why would they not fear? They certainly feared for the, uh, their son's life, but the text says that they're not afraid to disobey the king's command. You know, this whole issue always boils down to one thing. One thing, okay? Fearing God more than fearing man. Fearing God more than fearing man. Jesus said to his disciples, I will teach you whom you ought to fear. He talks about the fear of man, and he says, they can only destroy the body. He says, I tell you, fear God because he can destroy the body and cast the soul into hell. So he said, Jesus says, this is who you need to fear. And if God is the, is the top of your fear list, then obedience and righteousness will be at the top of your list. Amen? But if the fear of man is at the top of your list, whatever man prescribes you will follow suit. You will follow suit. God must be feared above all else. And Moses' parents feared God 
more than they feared the king. So in opposition to the king's orders, they took their son, they concealed him, and they protected him. And there seems to be an implication that that wasn't happening everywhere in Egypt at that time. Okay? It's crazy to think about. But what they did is called moral courage, doing what is right when you know it could hurt. Yep. Doing what you know God wants you to do regardless of earthly consequences. Oh, there will be rewards in heaven, but there may be grave suffering for it while on earth. And many people have suffered that. Okay. This was an act of faith in spite of earthly consequences for them. And, and quite often, um, and, and maybe and perhaps you've experienced this, but there is, there is no benefit immediately uh, for doing what is right. I think many of us are probably waiting <laughs> for some kind of reward for things done in this life that are good. And we should expect them ultimately because we serve a good God, right? We serve a good God. But it doesn't always happen that way in this life. A lot of people, a lot of Christians throughout the ages have received nothing but heartache until their death. And it wasn't until the next life where they enjoyed the reward. But the point for all of these people was is that honoring God was more important than honoring the king. That was what was most important. Now, I, I gotta say, I'm not trying to uh, start a bloody revolution because the Bible uh, doesn't prescribe that kind of behavior to the church, okay? But God has called us to moral courage, especially when it's illegal. Especially when it's illegal. And listen, immoral government mandates are on the horizon. They're on the horizon, which will challenge the conviction of everyone who professes loyalty to Christ and his word. It will challenge you, okay? We will be faced with decisions that will demonstrate who it is we fear most, God or government, and only the vertebrate Christian will stand. I think that when it comes down the pipe, it's gonna thin the herd out real fast, okay, real fast. Only those with a backbone fashioned by faith will survive. Only those who trust the Lord and obey his word when the pressure's applied. Now see, uh, this is, uh, the people have been gearing up for this for some time on both sides of the aisle of Christianity. Some who profess faith have altered the clear meaning of scripture in order to escape persecution and suffering, okay? In order to appease the culture, that's happening. But when these things come upon the church, many will just deny the Lord. They'll just deny him. But the vertebrate Christian will stand firm and he or she will probably pay for it. Yep. And I think counting the cost is a good thing. Now, in the scriptures, God doesn't just, you know, honor rebellion against government for any old reason. I think some people need to hear that. But there are contexts in which our disobedience to government is insisted, which God will honor, okay, which he will honor. We have three examples here in our context. We've looked at them briefly. The midwives, of course, did not execute the babies in disobedience to the king's command. And then they lied to the king when he asked him about it. Okay. And then Moses' parents would not yield their son to Pharaoh's decree, but they concealed him. Okay. This was not rebellion for the sake of rebellion. That was me when I was 15. 
16, 17, I just needed something uh, to rebel against. What's that, a rebel without a cause? Yeah. Um, the beauty is that my mom is like the Lord and all of that. She can't remember it. She tells everybody, he was an angel. <laughs> In our story, these people, their, their disobedience to the government was, was centered on protecting innocent life by means of lying, by means of deceiving, okay? And it was for that that God honored them. Exodus 1.21, as I mentioned, says that God blessed the midwives for what they did. He gave them households, and it was through the preservation of Moses, by the disobedience of his parents, that God delivered the Hebrews from bondage. It didn't just, they didn't just save Moses' life. They ended up saving many, many other lives. So before you just disobey the government, know that there are only so many examples of God honoring it through the scriptures. Okay? And nearly every one of them in the Bible has to do with protecting innocent life, as we've seen Exodus 1 and 2. Um, uh, Joshua 6.25, which we'll talk about uh, on another Sunday uh, with uh, Rahab the harlot. First uh, Samuel 19, First Samuel 20, and First Samuel 21 all have more examples. It's all preserving, protecting life. The other examples have to do with our devotion to God's mandates. Okay, mandates that we can't really avoid doing. Uh, the first example that comes to mind is Daniel's three friends, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, I don't like those names because they're pagan. Um, the other names are their Hebrew names. We know that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, after his dream, you know, Daniel interpreted the dream of the, the, the multi-metallic uh, statue to him. And uh, he was the head of gold, and uh, the other kinds of metals represented other kingdoms, but he decided that he would build, erect a statue that was all gold. And his kingdom was never going to come to an end. And then he had the good idea of having the, the, the dignitaries of his kingdom come together, and they would start some worship music and then had everybody bow down. But Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, or Hananiah, Azariah, they refused and you can see the scene. There's hundreds of people prostrate before this statue, and there's three young guys standing up in the midst of it. They refuse to bow down to this idol. And of course, what happened to them? They were thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, in that circumstance, God protected them. There's another story. Uh, the, the satraps and wise men uh, were trying to get Daniel in this predicament where he would be punished uh, for some kind of uh, fabricated disloyalty to the king. And so they had the king sign a decree that nobody could pray to anyone but to the king uh, for this general period of time, knowing that Daniel would not do that, but would continue to pray to Yahweh. And so what they did, they knew his customs that he prayed at a certain time of day, and they lied in wait to witness him doing that. And of course, Daniel went and prayed, and then he was thrown into the, the lion's den for that, okay? <clears throat> Another example of disobedience to government is the disciples of Jesus uh, were told to stop preaching the resurrection because it was causing so many disturbances in Jerusalem and in Judea. And uh, in Acts 
4, 19 through 21, they were standing before the Sanhedrin who were threatening them and telling them to stop. And they said, well, you, you figure this out for yourselves, uh, but we're going to obey the Lord rather than men. And uh, so they, after being threatened more, they left the Sanhedrin, and what did they do? They kept preaching the gospel. Okay. It's a mandate that really couldn't be avoided. But I think you do need to be careful with that one because Paul did not preach the gospel within the city limits of Philippi. That's an interesting one. Okay. And he went outside of the city to preach because it was illegal to introduce a foreign god within an imperial city. So he honored that. And where he could respect the laws, he would respect them. Now, if the law said that you couldn't preach the gospel in the Roman Empire, what do you think Paul would have done? He would have preached the gospel everywhere in the Roman Empire. Okay. So he could manage working around a city, um, but not an empire. So, you know, if your workplace forbids you to share your faith, it might be best to get creative and share the faith to your coworkers in another context. You can invite them over for dinner. You can have them out for coffee or lunch. You can point them to resources. Um, if you lack creativity like I do, uh, you can just preach the gospel and expect to get fired. Okay? <laughs> now, I'm not in danger yet in this context. Uh, and I say yet because historically the most dangerous thing to do is to preach the word of God to the people of God. Not, not you guys. Okay? Um, but there were other circumstances before ministry that... Yeah, there was things at stake, but when you have my personality, it just makes it more fun, okay? So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. History is full of examples of men and women who did great things by faith. So the conclusion, what is the conclusion of all this? I've come up with sort of a, a saying that I live by in all of this, and it goes like this. If you can obey God and the government at the same time and in the same way, obey God, okay? If you cannot obey God and the government in the same way at the same time, obey God, okay? And when you can't obey God and the government, obey God and expect some pushback, anticipate some trouble, and bear it like you ought. Bear it like you ought. History's full of examples of men and women who did that. Uh, one of my favorite stories comes out of the Reformation. It's in Oxford in 1554. Two reformers, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, they were bound to the stake to be burned because they challenged a heresy of the Catholic Church. And just before they lit the fire beneath them, Hugh Latimer turned to his companion and said, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as such shall never be put out. And they did. Amen? They did. So knowing the danger of opposing the present powers in Rome, these men preached the truth in spite of the consequences, and when they faced those consequences, they did it in faith. They did it with moral courage. Yeah. Now, in the context of your uh, righteous rebellion, uh, one more thing, I would warn you to be very cautious of commentaries that come from extreme libertarians. Okay. Now, like anything else, there's a spectrum, and I know there's a lot of 
libertarians in our church politically. Uh, but on the extreme spectrum, uh, some of them teach that uh, Jesus and Paul did not teach that we should obey an immoral government by paying taxes and so forth. Okay? Uh, I've read their nonsense, uh, their wacky interpretation of the scriptures, and all that they've done is they've, they've twisted the scriptures to agree with their libertarianism rather than just taking the scriptures at face, face value. Okay? And what they've done is shameful. Uh, you know, Jesus and Paul clearly taught that we should pay our taxes even to immoral governments who would do immoral things with our taxes. And our government does. Okay? Governments will be immoral, but we must not. Okay? And I think that the, the, what we have to do in all of this, we have to trust that God will judge the government for what they do with taxes. Okay? Uh, what they do with what means they have. But we also need to understand that God will discipline his people for not being subject to the authorities that are placed over them. Okay? Uh, that's very clear in Romans 13. And uh, so when you can obey the government, then you ought. Right? Yeah. Okay. So just be careful that your disobedience to government is consistent with disobedience that is honored by God in the scriptures. Okay? And if you do it, I'll applaud you. Uh, if you disobey government where you should not, I'll visit you in jail. Okay? <laughs> when you do it, just be ready to face consequences for your actions. Fear God above all else, and, uh, and you can't go wrong. Okay? You can't go wrong. All right, Hebrews 11, 24 through 29. Uh, we get a look at Moses' faith. We're not going to finish today, but I want to talk about some of it. Uh, it says, by faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, verse 24, and by faith he chose affliction rather than, the passing, ple than passing pleasures, verse 25. By faith he esteemed the reproach of Christ rather than great riches, verse 26. Excuse me. And by faith he fearlessly forsook Egypt, verse 29, and by faith he kept the Passover, verse 28, a dreadful night that was. And by faith, he passed through the sea. Verse 29. Now, obviously, Moses gets the most attention from the author of Hebrews, doesn't he? Okay, and I think there's good reason for that. Verse 24 says, By faith, Moses refused to associate himself with Pharaoh's household. Now, in the historical narrative, uh, God, of course, providentially, in his sovereignty, he placed Moses in Pharaoh's house. Wouldn't we say that? For those that don't know the story, uh, it goes something like this. Uh, after the three months of hiding uh, Moses had, was terminated, his mother prepared him a raft of sorts uh, that would float in the reeds of the Nile. So she kind of obeyed the king's command, right? <laughs> this she did out of desperation, but certainly in faith. And then by God's providence, Pharaoh's daughter saw him there she had one of her handmaids draw him out of the river. That's why his name is Moses. He's drawn out. And she had pity on him. She recognized that he was a Hebrew baby, which she should have, according to the king's command, hurled back into the river. And this whole time, we suspected it's Moriah. It says Moses' sister was watching to see what would become of him. 
And she went up to Pharaoh's daughter and said, would you like me to find a Hebrew, mid- or a Hebrew uh, woman to nurse the child for you? And she says, yes, so which Hebrew do you think she went and got for the child? Okay, so she went and got her mother, who then nursed the child, but that's not the only providential thing. Not only did Moses' mother nurse him to, to, till he was weaned, but Pharaoh's daughter paid her. <laughs> that's kind of sweet, huh? How many ladies' mothers would you have liked to have been paid uh, to nurse your babies? <laughs> that's great. And then it was after he was weaned that Moses was raised in Pharaoh's palace as Pharaoh's grandson. But then as Moses came of age, it says by faith, he refused to be associated with Pharaoh's household, this immoral government. Yeah. In Exodus 2.11, Moses, he went out and he observed the affliction of his own people and it was more than he could bear And it was at that moment of crisis that he forever removed himself from having anything to do with Pharaoh, okay? As verse 25 says, he chose to share in the affliction of his own people rather than remain in the palace and enjoy the temporal pleasures of sin. And it goes further, verse 26, he esteemed the reproaches of Christ above great riches because he was looking forward to the reward. Looking forward to the reward. Well, you'd have to really look forward to the reward, seeing all that was offered to him in the palace to trade that up. Okay? The contrast built into these passages indicates that Moses chose temporal suffering that would reap eternal benefits rather than enjoying temporal pleasures that would reap temporal pleasure, of course, but eternal misery. So it, in his mind, it was suffer now for righteousness and enjoy the pleasures of righteousness later. Okay. So like those before him, Moses had a forward-looking faith, but for Moses, his forward-looking faith helped him endure heartache and suffering for many years to come, for many years. Okay. He knew his reward was on the future horizon, so he fought for righteousness in the present. So listen to this. Moses... He turned down his status as the son of Pharaoh's daughter and returned to be the son of two slaves, as it were. Moses turned down life in the palace for life in the desert. Not just any desert, the Sinai desert. And Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ above earthly wealth. Now, there's something about Moses' faith where we have to assume that he, he understood this to some degree, the benefits of suffering now for righteousness or righteousness sake and that it outweighs any pleasure that this world has to offer. It must outweigh it. So Moses cast them all off like a garment and he, he took up the mantle of suffering. He took it up all by faith. Faith helped him look through the troubles of this life to the reward of the next. And when it does that, righteousness can be wrought along the way in patience. It's hard to have patience sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to give you this little outline briefly. For righteousness' sake, by faith, Moses said goodbye to status, pleasure, and treasure. 
Status, verse 24, pleasure, verse 25, and treasure, verse 26. And I haven't looked at it deeply enough to assign it to this category, but you could probably get the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life out of that as well. All that is in the world, okay? So the circumstances in life of Moses and his parents obviously required trust in God who provides moral courage to do what is right in the face of extreme consequences and, and worldly temptation. There was extreme consequences that could have been faced by his parents and of course the midwives. And there were consequences for him, but he received from the Lord by faith moral courage to overcome worldly temptation. You guys, it could not have been easy for him to turn away from all that he had. Could not have been, okay? The contrast between the world he grew up in and the world that he chose to live in, it was huge. To reject that status, okay? To deny the pleasures of the palace and to turn down the wealth of empire, all to identify with slaves who lived in extreme poverty and under brutal tyranny. What he did was the epitome of moral courage. It's not like transitioning from you know, the upper class of Western society to the lower class of America. That's, those, aren't, those aren't wide enough extremes. Okay, this is much bigger than that. Now, your circumstances may not be as dreadful as theirs or as extreme, but they served the same God that we serve. They serve the same God that we serve. The same moral courage that empowered these people is still available to us. If it's not, we're finished. If it's not, we're finished, okay? But it's still happening. Uh, a story that I love to tell is about a lawyer friend of mine who worked for a legal, form, a legal firm before he was saved. And the firm that he worked for was less than ethical in its practices. Imagine that. Which, at the time, wasn't an issue for my friend. But things got really messed up when he got saved. Because the practices of the firm became a huge moral dilemma for him. And in spite of how they expected him to practice law, he more and more began to imply uh, integrity and moral ethics from the scriptures. And you know what they eventually did to him? They fired him. They fired him for it. That's right. And that was hard. It, it, it nearly ruined him financially. But today, he has his own family practice, family law, and God has blessed it okay, as he's built his practice on biblical principles. But you know, it's his trust in the Lord. It gave him that moral courage to do what was right in, in the midst of his peers and who were formerly his friends. And through faith in the Lord, it sustained him when he was unemployed and then throughout the duration of starting a new firm, okay? It's a real neat story. I knew him before he was saved and after he was saved. He was one of the worst persons I'd ever met before he was saved. My mom can attest to that. And then I went off into the military and I came back to visit my mom and the dude was saved and in our church, my mom's church, and then after I got out of the service, I was saved. I mean, I, I hated him before I was saved. And then uh, I got saved six months before I got out of the military. I came home, and John was an elder at the church. <laughs> Such a trip to see that man go through that transition and to see the way that he lives now 
uh, with absolute integrity. And um, it's pretty sweet. Yeah. So God is still providing moral courage that is practical for us, okay? It's still practical for us. And there's no circumstance that he will not distribute his grace for our moral victory. You know, and what I love about this is that that this is hinged upon God's own character. Everything he does, he does for his own glory. And your moral success hinges on all of that. And so he wants to grant grace where moral courage is needed. So cry out to him, trust him, okay? And as our culture becomes more and more secular, uh, more and more faith will be needed because greater moral courage will be required. Our decisions are coming our way, okay? And now is the time to be strengthened in faith. Now, now is the time to establish our convictions and live by them. I believe that if we fail to do that now, we may buckle when our culture has the authority to turn on us. And I believe that they're gaining ground in that, okay? Yeah. Now is the time to know what you believe and live by it, and when the storm hits, you will be ready, okay? I think there's much to learn from the Hebrew midwives, from Moses' parents, and from Moses in the context of an immoral society and in the face of grave consequences. That's what I have for you today. Go ahead and stand up, and we'll pray. Ow, I was like within 30 seconds today of being on time. <laughs> it's pretty good. It was by accident, but it was pretty good. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, your people have faced troubles throughout their existence. They've had faith, and you've been faithful to them. And Lord, from our day-to-day lives, in our businesses, in our families, in our culture, we need to live by faith. We need to make decisions. And our decisions should be governed by your word, by the examples of faith that you've honored in the past. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would see this not really as an option for us as your people. You are Lord, and how dare us call you Lord and not obey your word. So, Lord, by faith, help us to have courage, Lord, to trust you in the midst of opposition and moral chaos, Lord. Give us strength to do what's right. Give us strength to endure uh, trouble, consequences. Lord, help us to stand firm. But Lord, as our culture comes against us, Lord, help us to be on the offensive and preaching the gospel and sharing light with people. Help us not to tuck tail and run, but to address things rightly. So Lord, help us to trust you in this. We love you. We know that you love us. And Lord, I pray that for the, the Christian community, the evangelical community in Centralia, that we would be assertive with the things of truth and the gospel. And that as a result, Lord, we would see our immediate culture transformed. So Lord, help us to hold back the tide. So Lord, we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.